Uh, Go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 2. That's where our sermon is going to be today. And guess who I saw slip in during worship? Glenda Johnson, we celebrate with you 50 years. I'd say 50 years of wedded bliss, but, uh, you know, 50 years of wedded. Yeah. So I always ask of, of those of you who have been successful in this way, any bits of advice for those of us who are following along behind you? He just does what I say. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> you know what, Glenda? I believe it when you say it. <laughs> Jennifer and I may be in trouble. If that's the key to the thing, we're in trouble. Glenda, we love you, so thankful for you, and uh, please tell dear Argel House how much we're celebrating that 50-year anniversary mark. Incredible milestone. Uh, Guess who's coming to dinner? Remember, uh, this is, you might be my group that'll get it. Second service, maybe half of them will be able to get it. Uh, It's a title and the tagline from an Academy Award-winning movie filmed in 1967, starring Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn and Sidney Poitier. 23-year-old Joanna had fallen in love with 37-year-old John. He was 14 years older than her, but that wasn't their only difference. Joanna was white and John was black. And when Joanna took John home to meet her parents, it was quite a shock. And when John introduced Joanna to his parents, they were equally shocked. It was 1967. Race relations in America were worse than strained. And into that environment came this movie designed to push people's buttons, stretch boundaries, inspire disagreements. Uh, Everything about the movie was against the grain. It wasn't supposed to happen. That wasn't how it was supposed to work in society at that time. And that still happens today. This uh, look who's coming to dinner, these improbable connections and the challenges that they face because of our preconceptions, and not just with race relations. If you go to school, the jocks avoid the nerds, the nerds avoid the band geeks, right? So everybody sort of splits up into their own groups. People for the ethical treatment of animals stage bizarre stunts to humiliate, embarrass, and harass people who eat meat or wear fur. We make fun of those who are from the wrong side of the tracks. The Razorback fans avoid the LSU fans. It happens in all kinds of environments. And it happens in religious circles. One group declares that they are the best, and oftentimes even with the belief that no other group other than them is going to heaven. <clears throat> there are a great many groups that don't believe that we are going to heaven because we are not them. Uh, in fact, a guy that I... I read his writings because I pray in tongues. He, doesn't th- he, he believes that that is demonically inspired. That's what he teaches. And I, I read his books. I, I like his stuff. He's a Southern Baptist man, but he believes I'm going to hell because I'm filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Now, if I ever got a call from John MacArthur and he invited me to speak with him, there would be no less shock and awe than there was in the home of Joanne when she brought home John, I promise you that. And today I want to look at a pivotal moment in the life of one particular man that Jesus encounters. He was the wrong guy to associate with. He was the one that everybody had agreed to hate. 
in Jesus' three short years of public ministry, over and over again, we see him go against the grain. He talked to people that, that others thought he shouldn't even talk to. He touched people he wasn't supposed to touch. He loved people he wasn't supposed to love. He healed people that didn't deserve healing in some people's minds. And, and he forgave people who were unforgivable, seemingly. There were no limits and no boundaries to Jesus' love when people would respond to his teachings. Uh, This part about Jesus really hacked off the Pharisees in a major way. They were the religious leaders of the day, and they got to decide who was worthy and unworthy, and their word determined who was clean and unclean. They decided who could come to the temple and who couldn't come to the temple, who was desirable and who was undesirable, who was on the inside and who was on the outside. And if you weren't in religious society, they put a lot of pressure on people to ostracize people who had been, they used a lot of social means to shame and bully and control people's lives. The story we look at today, Jesus pushes the envelope big time. He violates not only the Pharisee standards, but, but really all of societies. And Jesus reaches out to the, the most hated of his society in that day. It is a kind of love that can be difficult for us to understand. So as we're coming up to the Easter season of Jesus' great sacrifice and redemption, I'm wanting to go back and tell some of the stories that lay the scenery for it. And Jesus' interaction with Levi, who becomes Matthew, is absolutely, certainly one of those stories. So I will, I've got it in the notes too, but uh, Matthew chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 13. And let's just read that whole story together. I'll read it out of the English Standard, and then when I go back to preach it, I'll preach it out of the NIV, and I'll just try to keep you guys guessing about all that. Um, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. No, that's not right. It's Mark. Did I say Matthew? Yeah, it's Mark. I said the wrong one. I said Mark. Wow. Mark. It says it right there. Yeah, as soon as I started reading, I thought, there shouldn't be an angel in this story. (laughs) Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd, yeah, this is it. Yeah, I'm recognizing it now. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples who were there, and many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. Let me tell you a little bit about Levi, who becomes an apostle of Jesus Christ. He, he was named Levi. And Matthew, though he was, I'll call him Matthew for the purpose of this story from here on out because we know him as Matthew. That's why I said Matthew chapter 2 instead of Mark chapter 2. The story's about Matthew. It's all making sense now if you think about it. It's not that I'm losing my mind. It's perfectly reasonable. 
Matthew, though Jewish by his birth, worked as part of the Roman government's equivalent to the IRS. Only in the, instead of it being kind of a far away Washington thing, the tax collectors were right in your business. They would hire local people from local communities who knew what you were buying and selling and would tattle on you. They would, they would do whatever it took to try to make sure that you paid your taxes. And these taxes went to Rome. They didn't stay in these local places. They were taxes which were taken over by a military conquering group who was imposing these taxes to be collected. Now, the the Jews had grown to really despise the Romans as this occupying force. And to be a Jew who was working for and with the Romans was not only about taxes, it was considered traitory against your own people. That for them to be willing to, to betray their own people to the military occupiers, it was a very, very looked down upon thing. As a tax collector working for the Romans, Matthew was taking money from his own people to line the pockets of the enemy. And the Romans taxed virtually everything. If you think taxes here are something, you should have been in Rome at that day. There was a poll tax, they called it. Every male from 14 to 65 and every female from 12 to 65 paid it. It was a tax for simply living and breathing Roman air. There was a ground tax, which was a tariff on crop growers. One-tenth of all grain and one-fifth of all wine went to the Romans. Beyond those taxes, there were also occupational taxes. If you were a fisherman, you paid a fish tax according to the amount of your catch. If you were in the transportation industry, you paid a cart tax, and you were charged for each wheel on your cart. There were road taxes and bridge taxes and import taxes, and on top of all of these, each citizen paid a 10% income tax, and to make it worse... Tax-collecting businesses were issued through a system of tax farming in which they granted businesses to the highest bidder. So those who said, I, I can collect this much, and if another man said, well, I can collect more than that, they gave it to the highest bidder, which meant that oftentimes it was not only these taxes, poll tax, ground tax, fisherman tax, transportation tax, uh, income tax, they would often even outpace the actual taxes and they would have to collect all those taxes by all, any means necessary and they were empowered by the Roman government and the Roman military to do this. And so Matthew was not only betraying his people and oppressing the poor and extorting them to get more money, then the tax collectors became nefarious for charging more taxes than they even had to because if Rome got their bit, they didn't care if the tax collectors were crooked. And so the tax collectors, i.e. Matthew, i.e. Zacchaeus, i.e. these tax collectors who were hated by everybody, they would often charge poor people even more taxes because not only did they line the Rome's, uh, Rome's pockets, but also they themselves would become enriched 
by overcharging taxes and overcollecting taxes. In fact, that was the payoff. The payoff was if you're willing to betray your own people, and Rome had conquered this huge empire of very different peoples, and so they, they didn't, their tax collectors weren't from Italy. Their tax collectors were local people who would become vastly wealthy because they were willing to rat out their own people, extort their own people, and even persecute their own people with jail and beatings to get the money out of them. This is who Levi was sitting at that table. Can you, can you walk there with me in your imagination for just a moment in that marketplace? There Levi is sitting amongst his ethnic group but absolutely cut off from everybody because of the choices that he had made. He made a choice to betray his heritage for his own personal enrichment. Now, Jesus understood something about Levi sitting at that table that you and I have a hard time conceiving of, and that is this. Levi was unhappy at that table. We see in the end that at Jesus' invitation, he immediately stood up and abandoned all of that to follow him. But you and I look at the up and outer. You know, you've got the down and outer, but you also have the up and outer. We look at Levi and we think of him as, as being somebody who is unreachable because the up and outer is unreachable. But I will tell you this, there are as many unhappy up and outers as there are unhappy down and outers. There are. Why do you think we see Hollywood icons committing suicide every year, year in and year out, year in and year out? The most beautiful, the most rich, the most popular, the most talented people in our society end up overdosing on drugs and blowing their brains out. Why? Because they lose hope in the midst of what they've sacrificed everything for. Some of them to land these big roles in Hollywood have sacrificed their dignity. They've sacrificed their principles. They left behind their families. Having been enriched then, everybody that they ever knew comes after them for money all the time. Now suddenly they don't know, are my friends my friends because they love me or do they just want my money? In dating and in friendships, you have no confidence that people care about you for you. That's the joy that I have is if somebody's my friend, I know they love me for me. But these up and outers don't have that. And sitting at that table, Levi was miserable. He was amongst his people, hated by everybody. The sneers had worn him down. The, the hatred had worn him down. He, I, it seems obvious to me that he must have regretted his choice and was looking for an opportunity. But Matthew, Levi, was an unlikely candidate to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, wasn't he? An unlikely candidate. And just as in those times, we have a tendency just now, even in today, to size people up based on how they dress, how they look, what they do for a living, and then we decide whether or not they're a good candidate to be in our friendship circle. Some of us even deciding if they're a good candidate for Jesus Christ. God forgive us. We apply our standards and assume that God must agree with us, but Jesus demonstrated otherwise. He walked by and he said, follow me. And in that moment, Levi responded to Jesus' offer of repentance and grace. Matthew's calling was short. Jesus spoke and he responded. No doubt, Matthew had heard of Jesus. 
He might have actually overheard some of Jesus' sermons at this point. I mean, you wouldn't go to follow somebody you'd never heard of. Levi had been in that marketplace. He saw people's lives transformed. He saw people's lives being changed. He saw the sick being healed. He saw the demons being cast out. And he might have even met some of the cripples that Jesus healed as they were coming to pay their taxes. And Matthew said, I I have never seen you pay taxes before. Well, yeah, that's true. I used to be a cripple, but now I have a job. Well, how did that happen? I met a guy named Jesus, and he changed everything. Matthew was at the center of all commerce, and he knew everything that was going on. That was his job, to know everything that was going on, every penny that was being spent, every dime that was being moved. He had to have been surprised when Jesus asked him to come and follow him. Me? Can you almost see the look in his eyes as you're walking by the table beside Jesus when Jesus looks at him and says, come and follow me? Can you almost see the the shock, the slack-jawed response of a man who did not expect mercy? They were so different from each other, Jesus and Levi. People loved Jesus, and they hated Matthew. They thought Jesus was the salt of the earth. They thought Matthew was the scum of the earth. Jesus freely gave his time, his words, his love to anybody who wanted it. Matthew took anything he could from anyone he met. Jesus healed people physically and emotionally. Matthew had spent years crippling people financially and emotionally. Jesus was the Messiah. Matthew was a traitor and a menace. These two could not have been further apart on the spectrum. And yet, Jesus walked up and gave the invitation, follow me. It was unprecedented for a man like Jesus to ask a man like Levi to join his staff. If others heard the invitation, they must have been shocked as well. I wonder if James and John and Peter and Andrew had felt unworthy when he called them off the boats. But surely even they, especially Peter, must have looked at this invitation and said, Lord, we were unworthy, but he was really unworthy. Well, Matthew made up his mind quickly. He heard the call and he responded. He was ready for change. He must have been thinking about this for a long time. The emptiness of his soul was different from the thickness of his wallet. Whatever he had been through that day, Matthew left behind his business. He could not go back to it. Having lost it, Rome would never hire him again for having abandoned that position. He was not just giving up the business that he had. He was giving up any future in that business. And remember where he lived. He was a man that had wounded everybody he saw. Do you think any of them would give him a job? Do you think if he started his own business, any of those people would come to his business and buy goods from his shop? No! When Levi left that booth, he was taking a tremendous risk. Think about it. Nobody would hire him. Nobody would buy from him. If he left this business, he'd have nothing but Jesus. And you know what it said? Straightway, immediately, he got up and left. You think that's because he didn't know what would be facing him out there? You think it was because Levi hadn't thought about it? Levi said, I count all things as garbage compared to the grace of Jesus. Levi must have in his heart known, whatever I'm going to 
It's got to be way better than everything I've just had. He had, every, he had money, he had power, he had influence. But what, he want, what, he, what his soul needed, he did not have. And in that moment, he literally abandoned all of his, not only all of his past, but all of his future. He put it all in Jesus Christ. Tremendous step of faith. Maybe of all the apostles, if you think about it, of all the ones that we see their calling, Levi, who became Matthew, perhaps his was the greatest step of faith. Maybe even more than Elijah and Elisha. Remember when Elijah comes by and blesses Elisha, and Elisha says, well, let me, let me take care of all this. And Elijah says, you know, what have I done to you? Just go back to your parents. And, you know, and then he slaughters the animals, and he, and he, and he goes, and, and we think, wow, that was a big thing, you know, him to slaughter his animals. But if he was already responsible to, all he did was kill a few oxen and go and follow, he certainly could have gone back home. I'm telling you, all the people who depended on Matthew for that stuff, they would not have understood why he would have left that job. And all the people that he'd abused for years would never have accepted him back outside the grace of Christ. And so he abandoned everything he knew, all of his comfort and all of his hopes, to follow Jesus. He made up his mind quickly. He exchanged his security for Christ. Look at verse 15 with me, if you would. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Matthew made the life-altering choice to follow Jesus, and then he made another choice. Matthew arranged a feast at his own house and invited his old friends, tax collectors and sinners, to meet his new friend Jesus. I like Matthew's style here. He had to know people would be skeptical about his conversion, so what does he do? He invites everyone over to meet Jesus and his disciples. Guess who's coming to dinner must have had nothing on this dinner. Matthew's friends had to be shocked when Jesus came to dinner. People had to be looked in and were shocked at who Jesus was eating with. They're in the middle of the room surrounded by the people that you weren't supposed to, good people didn't associate with. There was Jesus. What kind of savior would hang out with sinners? See, we do that in religion, don't we? If you want to be free from criticism, don't spend any time with heathens. Just only hang out with Christians. If you want to be free from criticism. But if you want to have an evangelist gift, you better interact with sinners some. Because that's how they will see Jesus. What kind of savior would hang out with these kind of people? It just didn't seem proper. But Jesus was not concerned with people's version of propriety. Jesus was not politically correct, I'm proud to say. He could see into the heart, and he could see the potential in others. See, the Pharisees were not trained to see the potential in other people. The Pharisees were trained to judge people. They were, seen, they were trained to see the worst in people, and Jesus could see their futures. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? If you try to do something for Jesus, you will be criticized. I, I think it's very frustrating to me as a minister of the gospel. In fact, I think we should get in trouble for not doing something for Jesus. But a great oftentimes, 
When we try to do something, that's when we get criticized. When we do nothing, we don't. I, I want to do it the exact opposite. I try to tell my staff members that. You will never get in trouble from me for trying to do something that I didn't tell you not to do. If I told you not to do it and you do it, you might be in trouble with me. But if I didn't specifically tell you not to try it and you're being aggressive for Jesus, you will not get in trouble with me for being aggressive. I say that on purpose because it oftentimes is not that way. I worked on, on pastoral staffs where I couldn't do anything unless I had permission to do it. And I thought, I, when I become a pastor, I'm not going to have it be that way. I want people to be aggressive for Jesus so you won't get in trouble for trying and failing. You, we should get in trouble for not trying. But it's just not the way the nature of the world works. If you want to work for Jesus, you'll be criticized. Just count on it, and that's okay. Because really, we are living for that audience of one. We're living for Jesus. That's it. Look at verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well, they don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. So I've got nine minutes left. I just want to look at the love of Jesus, and I want to bring it home to us. Jesus saw Matthew collecting money for the Romans and himself. And Jesus knew what Matthew was like. He knew his past. He knew his corruption. He knew his reputation. Jesus was not naive in any way. Jesus knew him completely but loved him anyway. Jesus' love was able to see a person honestly but also lovingly at the same time. That's the miracle. That's the part that we have a hard time with. And God, I want you to know, can see clearly into your life as well. <clears throat> he knows everything about you. Everything you've ever done. Your, your spouse might not, but God does. And I might. You, listen, your pastor, I am not. Uh, I'll just say it this way. I'm pretty gullible. If you think you've got me snowed, I don't want you to take any credit for that. I have been snowed by people a lot less deceiving than you. <clears throat> I just want you to know that. If you're like, boy, I really got it over on the pastor. He thinks I'm great. Just know I'm pretty gullible, okay? So don't put that as a feather in your cap. I just sort of take everybody as they come. So I just don't want you to think, hey, boy, I, I've really done something great by, by getting it over on the preacher. You might get over on me, but none of us get over on the Almighty. And yet, the Word of God is clear to us that He loves us anyway. No, this is a miracle. Because love sees a person's potential, not just their past. Jesus saw more than what Levi had been. He knew the Matthew that he would become. And that's why Jesus changed his name to Matthew. The, word, the name Matthew, it means a gift of God. Jesus was seeing into the future and he knew the potential that was there. That this man who had been a hated tax collector would become a trusted friend who would write one of the four Gospels. Who would have ever imagined against all odds that man at that table was about to write one of the four Gospels that would come down through human history for millennia and change the way we saw God. The revelation that he was able to bring by his time with Jesus. Jesus looked at the man at the table and he did not see the sinner. He saw the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Andrew Carnegie knew something about potential. I grew up in in Pennsylvania. I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. My dad grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So the legend of Andrew Carnegie was very close to us. 
uh, in the growing up places, there were fancy, like the Waltons are here with the fancy things the Waltons have built. That's what Carnegie was in western Pennsylvania. Andrew Carnegie had been interviewed, and at that one particular time, he had 43 millionaires working for him. Now, that was back in the day where a millionaire was a millionaire. He had 43 millionaires working for him, and they asked, how did you manage to hire 43 millionaires? And the response from Andrew Carnegie was quick. He said, those men were not millionaires when they started working for me. They became millionaires as a result of working for me. So you can imagine the next question. They asked him, how did you develop these men to become so valuable to you that you have paid them this much money? And Carnegie answered, men are developed in the same way that gold is mined. When gold is mined, several tons of dirt must be moved to get an ounce of gold. But one doesn't go into the mine looking for dirt. One goes into the mine looking for gold. If you go into the mine looking for dirt, that's what you'll find. But if you go into the mine looking for gold, you will surely find some. That's the same way that we raise children. We don't look for the dirt. We look for the gold. That's the same way we make friendships. We don't obsess over the ton of dirt. We fixate on that beautiful nugget of gold. Most career specialists would have advised Jesus against choosing a guy like Matthew, right? We're in political season, and the decision for a running mate for the Democratic nominee is coming up. He will have many, many advisors who will give him lots and lots of good reasons to select certain kinds of running mates. None of them will select anybody even remotely like Levi. Right? No political advisor would advise that. No no, uh, high-dollar consultant would would have advised Jesus on picking Levi. This guy could take down your whole ministry. The, the confidence factor that they have in you will dry up if they see this guy walking around with you. God looks at us and he sees beyond our flaws. Aren't you thankful for that? I am grateful to be loved by Jesus, but I also feel very challenged to love like Jesus loved. To be able to look honestly at people and search for the gold inside of them. To realize that leaders aren't born, they are made. And so as your pastor, honestly, a lot of times I'm looking for gold in you. In the Bible studies and in the prayer meetings and in the small groups and in the outreaches. I'm not looking for your dirt. I'm looking for the gold. And And I feel like it's my job to try to put things together to bring out that best to let Jesus and his work refine all of us into that precious gold, silver, and precious stones. I want to love like Jesus loved, and I want to encourage you to to try to love like Jesus loved. Love your spouse in that way. A lot of dirt. Look for the gold. Matthew responded to Jesus' love by loving others. He went out immediately and duplicated the process that Jesus started. He called sinners unto repentance. He said, I want all my friends to come so that they can meet Jesus. I got a few minutes. I'll tell you the story of Bonnie McPeak. So my dad took a little church in Pennsylvania, had about 30 people in it, and over 17 years he grew that church to 500 in a little town of like 3,000. So like one out of every, I don't know how many, five, 15%, 15-20% of the whole community was going to our church in the end. 
But you want to know how that happened, really? My dad used to give altar calls, and nobody would respond because everybody was born again already, and they even got frustrated with him. Pastor, we love your sermons, but why are you giving salvation opportunities? We're all saved. He said, I'm giving them because somebody, I want you to know that if you bring somebody who's not saved, they can get saved here. And I will keep giving salvation altar calls so so that everybody knows that if anybody might bring a friend, they can have an opportunity to get saved. Well, a woman showed up named Bonnie McPeak, and Bonnie McPeak was that quintessential 1970s disco lady. Her skirt was too short. Her mascara was too dark for Pentecostal church. She came into that service, invited by a friend, and cried every bit of that makeup off in the presence of God. And she felt something. She knew that she had been touched by God. And she gave her heart to Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, she started inviting all of her friends. The 30 who had been there started getting pretty concerned because all of a sudden now, um, you had the normal greeters at the doors, and then Bonnie McPeak had her own people coming in, the disco people whose skirts were too short and whose makeup was too thick and who had, who had been out drinking the night before. The church was not used to this. It was a difficult thing, and she would line them up. She would greet them at the door and say, you're in the second row. She'd just go in there, and she would just tell them all where to go. And she, So you had this church where there were two sets of pews, one on this side, one on this side, and all the reasonable people were over here, and all the disco LSD freaks were lining up over on this side. And Bonnie was the, the general of the freaks. She just started, she would just line them up and she filled pew after pew after pew. And every altar call, people get saved. They'd get born again. They'd get water baptized. Their lives would start to change. They'd, they'd get married and their children would get dedicated. And, and the church began to grow. And then it was time to start building projects because the church was growing. But the original controller was very unhappy and so they had, a, they had a business meeting, and they had to decide about whether or not they were going to move forward. Would they expand or would they not expand? And in the end, the newbies outranked the original group. And the grand poobah stood up, and he pointed at my dad, and he said, you're taking this church down, and I'm not going to be a part of it. You're going to spend all this money? And you won't be able to pay for it. Who's going to pay for it? These people know I. And, and so he made a big whole thing in front of God and everybody. And he got up and started to walk out. My mom told me the story. My dad never would. My mom told me. I said, what did he do? Because now I'm a preacher. And I'm. he ran around to the side door. There was only one exit. And he ran around there. And as they all left, he shook their hands one by one. God bless you. Sorry to see you go. You're welcome back anytime. God bless you. You know, when you grow a church from 30 and you grow it up to 100, and then all of a sudden you're back down to 70, because all the people that voted you in have now left because you had the gall to invite sinners in. And the church kept, kept growing. 70 became 150, and 150 became 200, and then they had to do another building project, and they added the children's wing, and then, and then eventually they had to build the new sanctuary, and that was a whole other thing, and, and they built that new sanctuary, and then the services were growing, and now you've got four or 500 people coming to church. And I did ask my dad one time, did that man ever come back? Did he ever apologize? My dad said, no, he never spoke to me again. He lived in that community but never spoke to him again. Even, even though he had prophesied the doom that, that the church was going to go. But he said one Easter Sunday the house was packed 
And he said, the new sanctuary they built, there were, there were windows in the back. And he said, I saw him come in late. And he came across, and he said he saw him walk across the back and came in and sat in the back row. And then when he started to pray at the end of service, he got up and just left. That's it. Oh, I just get so frustrated at that story. I just wanted him to march down to the front and hug my dad and say, I was so wrong. It's tough. It's tough to admit when you're wrong. That little church, which was my upbringing place, that's the place I fell in love with Jesus and the word of God. That place is the place where I was water baptized. Those people were the people that were my childhood. The, the people who got saved in the Bonnie McPeak revival, their children became my playmates growing up. They were the ones I went to wear rangers with. They were the ones. So this was my upbringing was by, with these born again people. And I look back on that story, and it reminds me of Levi. Bonnie McPeak would not have been the person that any of us would have sought out to grow a Pentecostal church. Living in sin, going to the discos, doing all that stuff. But boy, when she got born again, she brought all her friends to Jesus. She just told them, you're showing up to church tomorrow. You need Jesus. They said, okay. She's lined them up. Filled up pew after pew after pew. Caused a lot of trouble for my dad to have to win those people to Jesus. He had to start a discipleship class. Isn't that terrible? <clears throat> Caused a lot of conflict in the church. Jesus loved people and extended his mercy toward them. And when they accepted his mercy with repentance, he showed them his love. And we often can fall into the same trap as the Pharisees. We church people. We're uncomfortable around sinners, so we hide in our churches. Churches were never meant to be hidden in. We need to get out more. Ah. It's a funny thing to say during self-quarantining, right? <clears throat> self-quarantining. All the introverts are like, yes, I've been waiting for this all my life. <clears throat> All of us extroverts are pretty sure the first horseman of the apocalypse was renamed self-quarantine. <laughs> so here's my last observation, and then we'll go. Love embraces the sincerely repentant. We have an obligation, a responsibility to embrace the sincerely repentant. To love them with Jesus' love. It's not an easy thing. If it was, we'd, churches would get it right more often than we do. What we often say is, it's fine if you want to come, but you've got to change how you look, and you've got to change how you act, and you've got to change this, and you've got to change this, when really what Jesus says is, come and follow me. You'll figure it all out along the way. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people that they're ready. <clears throat> they're ready for that change. Some of them, they don't even know that they need salvation. They just know that they are sick and lost, and their souls are bleeding and dying and in desperate need. And the answer to all of that is Jesus. That's what I believe with all my heart. So I look around, I don't see anybody that I don't know, but if any of you has a sin sickness between you and God, the answer is Jesus. He is the cure. 
And, and the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says that if we have faith and believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved. And like Levi, if you will leave behind your past and go and follow him, I think you'll find it'll be the best decision you ever made. And having done that, we then have an opportunity to bring all those people around us to Jesus. Stand with me if you would and we'll, we'll conclude. Lord, we thank you for this evening.